Hello, everyone. Welcome to God and Other Delicacies. I'm Nicholas Augusto. Thank you all for being here. I hope this show is finding you healthy, safe, and sane wherever you are in the world. Today, I have the privilege of welcoming Jeffrey Guin to the show. Jeff is an assistant professor of sociology at UCLA with research interests in education, culture, and religion. His first book, Agents of God, Boundaries and Authority in Muslim and Christian Schools, has just been released through Oxford University Press. Jeff received his doctorate and master's degrees from Yale University, his bachelor's from Loyola University in New Orleans, and he has studied in Damascus, Syria, and Mexico City, Mexico. Jeff and I know each other from our high school days at Creighton Prep in Omaha, Nebraska, and I suppose it's only appropriate that we would finally connect after years together in Los Angeles during a time period where no one is allowed to see each other in person. We'll be sure to correct that in due time, but for now, welcome to the show, Jeff. Thanks. Nicholas, I guess? Actually, I, we didn't talk about this earlier. Are you, are you no longer Nick? You can call me Johnny Beaner, uh, who you might remember. Yeah, sure. He used to call me Fat Nick Diggity, so you're welcome to call me Fat Nick Diggity if you'd like. <laughs> you can call <laughs> okay. me Nick. You can Nicholas call me. or Fat Nick Diggity. Those are my only two. That's two right. Options. Jeff, tell me about the book. You clearly have done so much work in this world, and I'm, I'm very excited to hear about the evolution of your personal perspective on this, and then oh, the thoughts that you will be bringing to this as someone of your kind of research stature and position. So I'm really thrilled to hear about it. But I'm I'm particularly interested in understanding a little bit more about the inspiration for your book. And there's one thing about uh-huh. it, as you, you talk about in the description, is the difference between essence and accident in your work, oh, yeah. in your work on boundaries. And so yeah. I would love to hear about what that means. Yeah, no, thanks. Thanks so much for asking. And thanks for having me on. Uh, it's, it's a lot of fun to be here. So, you know, I started graduate school four years after undergrad. So 2007 and, um, I'd been a high school teacher and I really loved it. And there was a part of me that thought I might still go back to high school teaching, just sort of get the PhD to, as a thing to do and then, and then go back to teaching high school because it was such a meaningful part of my life. But kind of along the way, I, I fell in love with research, but I still wanted to keep that connection to education. And I mean, like you, and I think like a lot of people who went to Jesuit schools, religion was still really important to me. And, and so, you know, I kind of just thought I went to religious schools. I taught at a religious school. Like I, I mentioned in religious schools, but you know, I kind of wanted to date other people besides hmm. Catholics. So <laughs> I, uh, I said, so, you know, I'd been essentially in the Catholic universe from kindergarten up until age 26, really. Because yeah. um, yeah. af- after I went to a Catholic high school and Catholic college and Catholic grade schools, I worked at a Catholic social service agency and then taught at a Catholic high school. And I was kind of interested in studying, you know, American evangelicals and American Muslims because in some ways they're what Catholics were – 50 years ago, like they're still a bit more separate from mainstream culture. I mean, nowadays, American Catholics basically vote with the main population, right? And so like there's conservative Catholics and liberal Catholics and the conservative Catholics watch Fox News and the liberal Catholics watch CNN or MSNBC or, or none of them watch it. And so Catholics are, are pretty well integrated now in a way that, you know, evangelicals and Muslims still feel more of a sense of outsidership. And so I, I was interested in that kind of boundary, which, which gets to your other question. And so that's another reason why I was interested in, in comparing uh, Muslims and evangelicals. And also, you know, I was just, I've been interested in Islam for a long time. I co-teach um, a global Islam course 
uh, here at UCLA. I went to Damascus to, to learn some Arabic, and I have a Middle East Studies certificate that's sort of centered on on Islamic thought, on uh, especially regarding education. So, you know, I, I'm thinking about a lot about this stuff, and so I wanted to sort of center that in my research too. And then, you know, the argument is, is basically about how these schools deal with the problem of of power in reproducing themselves. You know, you're a parent, I'm a parent. There's this interesting thing where simultaneously you want your kids to think for themselves, but you really hope that they're thinking for themselves happens to be thinking just like you, mm. right? And so how do you do that? And what's interesting about both Islam, or especially Sunni Islam and, and American evangelicalism is that they're both traditions that really emphasize freedom. It's not like the Catholic Church where you have a priest who controls the Eucharist, right? The, the sociologist Max Weber actually calls that a monopoly of grace. Because if you if you get excommunicated in the old idea of Catholicism, you would go to hell because you would no longer have access to the sacraments. You were screwed, right? You need the sacraments. Right. And, you know, for, for Protestants and for Muslims, that's just not how it works. Like you have immediate access to God. For Protestants, anytime you go to the Bible and pray, and for Muslims, you know, anytime you make Salah, which is the five prayers they do a day and, and other assorted things. And so there's, there's not the kind of priest intermediary there is for Catholics. And so, you know, there's this kind of democratic sense in both Sunni Islam and evangelical Protestantism that I think is really interesting because simultaneously there's this authoritarianism that you have in any religion and honestly that you have in any value system where you want your kids to know this is what's right, damn it. And like that's that's something that's true just as much for American liberals, right? Like I don't want my daughter to be a racist. That's not a negotiable thing for me. Mm-hmm. Like I'm not going to be like, well, you're, you have a right to your opinion. I guess you're a Nazi and I'm not, right? Like that's not a conversation we're going to have. Yeah. So what I'm interested in is, is how those work. And so the first half is about those boundaries. And so I talk about politics, gender, and sexuality. And I'm interested in sort of how those are bounded off, how these people bound themselves off from the rest of society. And what's interesting about evangelicals and, uh, and Muslims is they do something that the sociologist Chris Smith called distinction with engagement. So they simultaneously distinguish themselves from the rest of the world, but they also engage it, right? I mean, they're not Amish, they're not Mennonite, they're not Orthodox Jews who are really trying to avoid a lot of the world. I mean, these are people who are very much in the world, but also very much think of themselves as distinct from it. And this gets to essence and accident, which is an old kind of Aristotelian idea that's actually used quite a bit now among psychologists and some philosophers to think about what things really are. And so to be clear, and this is like, you know, super nerdy, and I just talked about this in the footnotes, most philosophers no longer believe things really have an essence. But a lot of psychologists think we think about things as though they have an essence. Mm. So what does an essence mean? An essence is basically the chairness of a chair. And so like if you were to take away one leg, but you could still sort of sit on it as long as you sit in the front of it where the back leg isn't there and kind of it still works as a chair, it sort of maintains its essence as a chair, right? right. But if you were to cut it up completely and just like put it as firewood, it's kind of lost its essence. Now it's just firewood. It's not a chair anymore. And so the, the old Aristotelian from Aristotle distinction between essence and accident is basically an essence is something that makes the thing what it is. If you get rid of something that's essential, it goes from being a chair to firewood, right? It stops being what it is. And an accident is something that doesn't really matter, right? So if you paint a chair blue, it's still a chair. It's just now a blue chair. <laughs> we actually learned about this uh, our sophomore year about transubstantiation and how the, the Eucharist mm. stays bred 
but that's just the accident and the essence or the substance is also the word essence is also substance changes to the body of Christ. So Aquinas picks it up as well to use it to explain sacramental theology, but social psychologists use it to talk about how humans think about categories. And that's, that's how I'm trying to integrate it into sociology. And so what I'm interested in is what's essential about our identity and what's accidental. And by that, I mean, what is non-negotiable? What is something we're going to fight about? And what is something that, you know, we might disagree about, we might not like, but it's a huge deal. And so, for example, one of the things I, I write about a little bit in the book, but more in another article, is why creationism is so essential to conservative Christians in America, but it's just not a huge deal for Muslims. So most of the Muslims I met didn't believe in evolution. But I didn't know because I just didn't care. They didn't talk about it that much. Like it just wasn't a huge deal for them. Hmm. And I had always assumed if you were a creationist, it was this huge deal because, you know, I had met these conservative Protestants for whom it is a huge deal. And so I'm really interested in like, what are the fights that we choose to really be mad about? And what are the things we might believe, but we just, you know, doesn't take up a lot of our time. What do you think, you know, when you are looking at the headlines of, of this type of stuff. You said uh, gender, sexuality, and what was the third? Politics. Politics, of course. Yeah. Of those, is there something particularly that yeah. just really grabs you about that in a way that you just can't look away from it now that you've seen it or something? Yeah, so I, I will say race does show up in my book. Mm -hmm. And I do write about the racialization of Islam in an article and a little bit in the, in the book too. But it's definitely something that I think all of us are thinking about more now, and, and I'm definitely thinking about a lot more now. And so, you know, when we talk about evangelicalism, it's a huge, huge term that in Germany, for example, basically just means Protestantism, right? Mm. And so, like, what we mean by evangelical is actually really complicated. And so, in the United States, people tend to think of it as emphasizing the, the centrality of the Bible and often the literal truth of the Bible, but mm -hmm. there's some debate about that. Having a profound experience of being born again, uh, and then there's some other things as well, but, but those two are, are really key. And, and I would say that the really key term that I think has really changed in the sociology of religion in the past four years, five years since, since Trump you know, came down the escalator was really emphasizing, we mean white evangelical. Mm. Right. And, and talking about sort of the role of whiteness and the role of race in evangelicalism, because there is a black evangelical tradition. There's a huge Latino evangelical tradition in the United States. And, you know, as we saw um, in Texas just now, that that doesn't necessarily mean um, those folks vote Democrat or, or are liberal. Right. I mean, like you know, they might well be voting for Trump, too. Sure. But they're also different. Right. And they're just thinking about things often in, in somewhat different ways. And so. One of the things I am thinking about more now than I used to is is race and specifically what some friends of mine call Christian nationalism mm. and, and what that means. And that relates to politics. And it also relates to, to sex and gender and how we think about patriarchy. But, you know, I also do – I want to emphasize, and I think I'm clear on this in the book, that, you know, this book isn't a, a, an attack of these people, right? I mean, I think liberals like me – and I, I mean, I made very clear I was a liberal – right when I met these schools that I hung out at, liberals might be uncomfortable with some of the things I find, but I hope they also recognize that these are really kind, decent people. And they understand that they hold beliefs and values that others might experience as violence. And, and that's complicated, right? Like, I, I don't know how to answer that exactly, but, but I do know that I'm grateful for the welcome 
that I received from these communities and, and the kindness that, that all four of them showed to me, these two Muslim schools and two evangelical schools that you know, I spent a year and a half in studying and hanging out with and getting to know and interviewing. Yeah. Do you feel like, see, so you've struck on something that I find is a big part of uh, the journey I'm on too, which is the human connection, the emotional connection, right. the illumination of the person as beyond the particular checklist of definitions that you right. see on the piece of paper before you meet the person. Right, sure. The person behind that checklist is a real person who has real yeah. desires and is kind-hearted almost all the time in some way and uh, has value system that makes sense when you meet them. Sure. Where are the moments where you're the most uncomfortable in your preconceived notions of it? You know, do you find yourself sitting there yeah. going, look, I, I know what I feel like is right. You know, I understand the, to take you back to the non-negotiable items that you are going to be imparting to your child. Some of these things that are illuminated in this school will not be yeah. what you pass on to your child. Right. And yet, did you find yourself at times these ideas resonating with you or these ideas feeling harmonious yeah. for you? Was that uncomfortable? Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I grew up a conservative Catholic kid. I, I, I registered Democrat at 18 and like it caused this huge uh, fight in my family. I remember my mom hung up on me when she found out I was voting for Al Gore. Wow. And I mean, we're fine now, but like, you know, it was- I have empathy with this. I have politics and, and religion were always difficult in my family. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting. I, I don't, I don't think I ever, I don't think I ever thought, huh, maybe I should be less liberal than I am now. I definitely thought I should be less judgmental of conservatives than I am, but I also, and, and forgive me, cause I don't want to sound like puritanically woke or anything, but you know, I was aware of my privilege, right? I just remember thinking like, I'm able to do this, especially at the evangelical school, but to some degree at the Muslim school too, because I am a white, straight, or I am heterosexual, but I also sort of present in a heterosexual way, stereotypically heterosexual, whatever that means. And I'm this tall, white dude who's not hideously ugly. You know what I mean? And so like, and that, that afforded me a kind of privilege to to get into these places. And I just remember thinking like, you know, if I was a woman or a person of color or someone who for whatever reason was kind of coded as gay right away or trans, like, I, I don't know if I would have this access and I don't know if I would have these kinds of experiences. And these folks are very kind, right? And so I don't, look, I, I don't know, right? Because I've never experienced them as anything but myself. And I, I haven't necessarily seen them around other people, but it's hard for me to believe. And I just like to believe that these people who were so kind to me would be kind to pretty much anybody. And I think that's true. I do think that's, look, there were some jerks at all of these schools, right? Like there were jerky kids and, and jerky adults, but like, and the kids I don't blame because they're kids, right? But the adults I felt pretty, pretty frustrated with, but that's true of any organization or sure. institution, right? Sure. Like, and generally speaking, people were just incredibly nice to this random grad student who wanted to show up and, and, and listen to them and write about them. But you couldn't help but wonder Am I exactly the person that they would be nice to? Basically, what you're saying is everything that they're teaching these kids is that I'm the one that's okay. Yeah. But you're not sure if what they're teaching these kids is are the other people that I love in my life and care about and root for, would they be okay here? And that's the real trick is I, they would, all of them, I think all of them say, you are a child of God, or you are created by Allah, right? 
Right. But the way you live is wrong. Like, I think they would all say something to the effect of, you know, hate the sin, love the sinner. Yeah. And so it's not like they'd say that person is infecting our school by their very presence, right? But they would say, and they did, and one of the schools did say that person is in, infecting our school by their actions. Mm. And they didn't use those words specifically, but they essentially found out that one of their students was openly gay and asked the student to leave. Wow. Jeff, this is a really good place to um, hang up the first segment. And we'll take a little breather. We'll be back in just a minute. At times like this, it is necessary that we ask ourselves what is worth talking about, what is worth listening to, and what we each can do to make the world around us better in our own small way. Discussions revolving around a person's beliefs and perspectives on God are something I personally can speak to, and my intention is to create a space where our deepest feelings about God and life can be expressed, heard, and better understood. That is one of the motivations behind God and Other Delicacies, and it is my humble hope that it contributes to the positive side of the cultural ledger. It is my intention to continue to create opportunities here for the presentation of those ideas that are different than mine, so that I can listen to them, come to understand them better, and hopefully, Discover ways in which I and each of us can participate in fostering communities that are ultimately more fair and loving for all. All right, everyone, we're back with Jeff, and we didn't get to any of the typical formalities of my show at the beginning, so we'll do them now. What did you have for breakfast this morning, Jeff? I had leftover, not leftover Thanksgiving potatoes because that would be gross by now, but we didn't cook <laughs> some of the like little baby potatoes, you know, that you put like under the turkey or we put under the turkey. Okay. So we made those and then we had eggs and then our daughter also had eggs, which is like the only thing she will eat with incredible efficiency. And uh, yeah, it was good. Oh, good. Good coffee, of course. Oh, yeah, yeah. Good. How many cups of coffee a day for you? Oh, my God. Way too many. Probably. <sighs> Probably six on wow. average. When do you yeah. stop drinking coffee in the day? Uh, usually around four. I'll have two pretty pretty quick. So I try to get up around, I mean, it almost never happens, but I try to get up between like four and five. Ooh, wow. So I actually get work done before my daughter wakes up. Well, good for you. Well, I mean, the main problem is like, I, I'm just not a person who's great at working late. And so like, once my daughter goes to sleep around seven. Like I hang out with my wife. We like watch a show or, or, or talk or whatever. And then around nine or 10, I'm just like, I'm out. Right. I feel you, man. (laughs) I'm exhausted. um, I just go right to bed after I get him down. Yeah. So I have friends who just like, they're like, yeah, my most productive time is between 10 and midnight. And I'm like, yeah, good for you. But like, yeah, I can't do it. So. Well, Jeff, let's dive in. Okay. How and when were you introduced to the idea of God in your life? Yeah, that's so interesting, right? So, oh my gosh, what a great question. I'm trying to remember if I have a memory that doesn't involve me already knowing there's a person named God in the world. Mm -hmm. Because my family was so religious, at least in the typical sort of suburban Catholic sense, you know, where there was rosaries all over the place and... um, Crucifixes on the walls. Yeah, crucifixes on every, every wall. And we would say, bless us our Lord before every meal and we went to mass every Sunday and then we went to all the, not all the holy days of obligation, but you know, the big ones. And I was one of five kids too. And so it was sort of this big Catholic 
family. And my, Where my, were you in the five? I was the oldest. Oh, okay. And I, I remained the oldest. I also have five in my family. Oh, yeah. I think I knew that. I don't think um, I, I, I didn't know that about you. So anyway, go on. So you're the oldest. Yeah, so I'm the oldest of five. And, you know, just the Catholic stuff was kind of everywhere. And as the oldest, did you, I find it interesting that you took on a, obviously a, a break from your parents. Uh, right. I imagine to some extent that that was even harder for your parents. Being the eldest, you yeah. were probably, yeah. you were, there was probably a certain responsibility that they saw on you to be a guide to oh, your yeah. other siblings. Oh yeah. Well, you know, what's, what's interesting about it is I, I only broke from them politically. I mean, I, I was sort of flirting with being a Jesuit for a long time in high school and college. Uh, and I actually was like officially in discernment where I like wasn't dating anyone. and was going oh, to wow. retreats and everything um, for my first two years out of college. And so, you know, I, I definitely never left the, the religion and I, I, at least not, not then. And I, I was the confirmation sponsor of my two youngest siblings. It's, it's two boys, a girl and two boys. And I was Ben and Kevin's confirmation sponsor. And I took religion really, really seriously. And that was, I mean, you know, like, like any 19 year old, that was kind of my jerky move, right? Is I could be like, well, I'm a Democrat because I love Jesus. You know, I mean, I, I, I was right, never that right. obnoxious, right. But I would sort of, you know, push the sort of radical poverty of Jesus and that kind of thing right, against right. my parents' conservatism. And so, you know, my parents are very kind, loving people. But yeah, my dad was in the military, so we moved a lot. And I remember thinking that, you know, the one consistency in, in my life was, uh, besides my family, obviously, was was Catholicism. That, you know, we would go anywhere. and The mask was basically the same. You know, we would be stationed at all sorts of different bases. And, you know, I lived in all sorts of places for one to three to five years, depending on the my dad's placement. And we always went to a Catholic school. And, you know, we always had the same kind of format of a liturgy of the word and the liturgy of the Eucharist. And so when do you as a young child start or a teenager start to realize like, I really like this so much that I could see myself maybe becoming a Jesuit. I mean, some, sometime yeah, at prep, yeah, yeah, yeah. sometime when we're at high school. Yeah, totally. It was a prep. So there's, there's a few things. So one, I, I <laughs> it wasn't until I was around 23, 24 that I was diagnosed with a with pretty severe uh, obsessive compulsive disorder and uh, oh wow, and anxiety and depression. And the problem is I just been misdiagnosed as a very good Catholic up to that point. <laughs> and so what? hold on, that's amazing. There's a, yeah, a lot of humor in there, but there's a lot to unravel. What are yeah, you yeah, saying yeah. when but you, you say but, that? But anyone is Catholic knows what I'm talking about. Well, right? yeah, and certainly so, like guilt and shame and, you know, maybe a self beratement to sort of sure. uh, trying to hold yourself up to like the Jesus perfection, I Totally. And a hyper intense scrupulosity that can sort of look just like obsessive Catholicism. Right. right and so like, right. like, so I'm not OCD in the sense that I don't count tiles. I'm clean, but I'm not super clean. You know, I wash my hands a norm, more now because of COVID, but generally a normal amount, right? Like all the sort of stereotypical OCD things I don't do. But I just remember always feeling guilty and always feeling like I did things wrong and then needing to like, do very specific things. So I remember in fifth grade, I had like a rosary and like a prayer book and like a rosary case. And I think another prayer book and I would like hold them in my pockets in this very specific way. Oh wow! And I would feel like really anxious if they weren't in my pockets that way. And then I would pray the rosary at the same time every night. And I had to be sitting in the same place to do it. Would you watch the clock? 
Yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. And I had to make sure I got it in before midnight. It was like this sort of like mystical thing. Wow. And I remember thinking, this was like really intense. I remember at like various moments when I was younger, feeling the need to just keep saying the Hail Mary in my head over and over because I was worried if I didn't, I would inadvertently blurt out, I give my soul to the devil and then oh I would just be God. lost forever. And wow. so I just had to keep my head saying Hail Mary so I wouldn't accidentally blurt that out. Wow. And so, you know, it was just like classic OCD symptoms, right? But like it's, it's, a, it's a slightly more unusual form of OCD that like someone who's trained in that stuff would recognize but isn't the sort of typical manifestation. And so, um, you know, I've been taking medicine for it. I'm, I mean, there's, there's, there's flare-ups and I, I still get anxious and sad, but I'm basically fine. And, and I, I make a really conscious effort to actually tell my, my grad students and undergrads now that, you know, I take medicine for anxiety and depression and OCD and it's, I, I'm have a more or less successful life and I'm happy to talk about strategies, but you know, it did manifest as really intense Catholicism. And I, and I do think a part of my attraction to the priesthood unconsciously was a way to master all of my anxiety and just to get even better at this kind of control. Right. I just remember thinking how much I want to be better. Right. And how much I, I admired the Jesuits who, you know, what I was, we were like, between 14 and 18, right? We really didn't know that much about them and how broken and, and fallen they actually were. But there was this sort of perception that they just, you know, they had their lives figured out and they had their passions kind of controlled in a way that, you know, especially if you're a hormonal teenage boy, that just seems impossible, right? And so, you know, the idea that you could be this kind of serene monk, because I, I have never in my life had serenity. And like that's, you know, I have, I have various gifts, right? And I'm grateful for them. And, and serenity is not one of them. And wow. Just the idea that I could be serene is, was, was so powerful to me. And it is still powerful to me. So, yeah, I mean, I think that was, that was always the attraction, right? was this idea of peace and just being able to find, find peace. And I, and I think that's in some ways still what I'm, what I'm looking for. In, yeah, in I was just about to ask that. Like, when did the... When did you discover that you weren't going to find serenity there? Well, I mean, they discovered it for me in some ways. I mean, the Jesuits said no to me twice. They said no to you. Like, so yeah, when you went through the period, times. when you said, yeah. when, when you went through the period of discernment, what you're saying is, is you made a decision to continue and they said no. They said no the first time because I had dated someone too recently. And then I was, I was ah. fully celibate for a year. And then they still said no. I think because they were mad about me having dated someone recently and also, I mean, <laughs> I, I did have as yet undiagnosed OCD. And so it's entirely possible that I came off as weird in my, in my interviews. <laughs> They're like, listen, I mean, we have to pick people we're going to spend all our time around. So super depressing. The funny thing is I talk to people in the Jesuits now and they're like, yeah, compared to some of my housemates, you were significantly less crazy, but you know, that is what it is. But yeah, so I tried I tried the following year and I was celibate for the year. And I got turned down again, and then I didn't really know what to do. But, you know, I mean, I think I, I always remember the line from the gospel about, um, you know, Jesus saying to let the dead bury their dead and to sort of give up all you have and, and that kind of that kind of radical indifference and, and, and how Ignatius talked about that, too, and just how the ideal Jesuit is able to sort of have dinner with a king, right, if, if that's necessary to sort of do the, the work of God, but then to be totally indifferent to it. So if tomorrow all of your fancy books and all of your, your fancy food and clothes, you just get rid of them and, and move to a mud hut, you're able to do it with like total equanimity, right? Total indifference. 
And I always thought that was such an amazing idea to be able to be capable of that. And, and I think one of my attractions to religion, especially Buddhism and Islam, is how they have very similar lessons. The Prophet Muhammad has a lot of things like that. The Buddha's whole thing is, is about non-attachment. And, and so, you know, trying to think about my attachment to worldly things and how, you know, I, I believe God made the world good, right? Like, it's not that, it's not that I totally reject the world, right? But that I'm able to sort of not need any specific piece of it except God's love. That was always a really powerful lesson for me. And, and so in some ways being rejected from the Jesuits was sort of the the ultimate example of that, right? It was like when Ayosha lost Father Zosima and, and Brothers Karamasov. This way to think that even this icon that's sort of tethering you to God is actually not God. Mm. Uh, yeah, how interesting that the thing the thing that was going to be the vessel for you to get closer to God is the thing that drove you away and actually helped illuminate a, a more personal connection to a God that began to grow for you. Yeah, totally, exactly. Do you still identify as a believer? So that's an interesting question. I definitely identify as a Catholic. I identify as someone who says, I believe, help my unbelief, which is oh. that, um, that line from the gospel. I, I actually don't know that line. I've just, I'm just struck, oh, really? I'm no, struck it's, by it's, it. It's this yeah. great line where... Um, I, I'm only pausing because I was like, wow, I don't think I... That's great. No, I don't know it. I think of it. I actually say it every time I go up to get the Eucharist. It's what my little private prayer is. Oh, wow. Yeah, Mark 9, 24. And it's this man who wants Jesus to... Uh, I think that he wants Jesus to cure his son. You know, Jesus says, do you believe it? Uh, do you believe I can do it? And he says, I believe, help me, I believe. Mm. Um, mm. And, you know, I, if you if you cornered me right now and said, does God exist? I don't know what I'd, I'd pro- if, if I had to guess, I would probably guess no, but I, I really want God to exist. And, and I'm not willing to, I wouldn't say I, I'm an atheist by any means. Like I wouldn't, I just wouldn't say that. I, I, I don't, cause, cause I don't know. I just, I just don't know. And, and Catholicism continues to be really meaningful to me. I think that for, for me, the biggest thing is more than all the kind of theological problems and inconsistencies. It's, it's really just the problem of evil. I remember, I think this all the time, whenever I see all sorts of bad stuff happen, but um, my daughter was actually in the ICU for a few days uh, when mm-hmm. she was just about three months old and she was really having trouble breathing. And at one point we were, there was, there was a real possibility she was going to die mm-hmm. and, you know, thank God she's fine and she didn't. But, you know, I just remember thinking like, what kind of God makes this kind of world? And that's just my daughter being really sick, right? That's not my daughter dying. That's not six million people of my religion dying. You know, there's all sorts of like, yeah, obviously infinitely worse things than my kid being in the ICU a few days. But like the problem of suffering is real. And look, I'm a smart guy. I've read all sorts of things about the problem of evil and the problem of suffering and sort of ways to think about it. And I I do think the best answer is just in Job, which is God saying, you just can't know. You just can't understand it or or explain it. And I, I, I still, I just don't love that answer, you know, and maybe that's me being too arrogant and not accepting, you know, humility before God and, and demanding to know. But the, the problem of evil for me is, I don't know if it's, it's insurmountable because again, I haven't entirely given up on, on belief in God, but it, it's by far the biggest challenge. It, it's for me, the biggest thing that keeps me from just saying, yes, right away, I'm a believer. So that's probably where I am now in my spirituality. So you, 
identify as Catholic, though, you're not saying you're a cultural Catholic, although you are. I mean, I'm religious, but not spiritual, right? Like I'm the opposite of yeah, spiritual, but that's, not religious. That's what I was going to get at here is that yeah. this isn't vestiges of of the OCD you've had since a child giving you continued OCD comfort. This is- I mean, it could be. It's entirely possible that's the case, which, you know, isn't the worst thing in the world. There are much right. worse ways to get OCD comfort. But like, yeah, I think, I think it is something about the ritual giving me a sense of meaning. But you know- yeah. And then the participatory element of community and sure, yeah, and, and uh, right adherence to just that you clearly enjoy. You're an academic. You love the history of things. Yeah, you love yeah. being connected. You love seeing yourself in the historical through line of right of these traditions. And there's something beautiful about doing something that feels ancient. Um, yeah, so all that I love stuff. The culture. I love yeah. the art. I love the poetry. I love the music. I love the, the literature, like especially like the you know, the French and Italian movies that are clearly sort of inspired by Catholic imagination. I love Bruce Springsteen. You know what I mean? Like things that are kind of have a Catholic edge to them. I think that also for me, I'm very postmodern about it, right? Like there's no inherent platonic truth to democracy either, right? Like there's nothing floating in the sky that says like every person has a right to vote, right? Like that's just a thing we all come together and agree is true. Most of human life is just stuff we say that we keep saying until it just feels right. Mm. Money, like money is the classic example, right? Like paper is just, that's just stupid paper. Like if every single human died, it wouldn't even be paper because paper is a human concept. Mm. It would just be like this stuff, right? And so like the fact that we have any kind of words for anything is just a bunch of constructs. And so like, you know, why is this construct that gives me meaning necessarily sillier than any other construct? And, you know, there are reasons why it's sillier or more harmful or more homophobic or, or whatever. But at, at the end of the day, like, you know, the parish that um, we did go to before before COVID is an inclusive place. And I, I feel comforted and warmed by the, the messages. And, and more than anything else, uh, the Jesus of the Gospels, and especially the sort of Jesuit understanding of it, is how I understand what goodness is, and it's to some degree how I understand what beauty is, and and all those sorts of things. And so that's that's formed me in a way that even if I really did sort of decide I, I am full on an atheist and I, I somehow know for certain God doesn't exist, you know, I'd still probably be a Catholic atheist, right? Like I just I don't see how I could ever sort of shake the way that Catholicism formed me. And, and, and I think that part of that is the way I view the world, right? And I remember saying this to a, a, a Muslim friend of mine who was trying to convert me to Islam. And I was like, look, I think Islam is a really beautiful religion and I'm really inspired by it. But I remember one time I was really moved by the power and grace of, uh, of a moment uh, in a prayer that I was watching. And my first instinct was to do a sign of the cross. Hmm. And, and that's just my instinctive language for dealing with moments of grace. And like, that's kind of baked in now, you know, for mm -hmm. good or bad. And the whole sacramental imagination of Catholicism is, is really baked in for me. And so I hope it's true. I mean, I hope, I hope there's some of it that I actually don't want to be true, but I hope most of it's true. But, you know, if it's not, that's not the end of the world for me. I'm pretty comfortable with life. If there's an eternal life after this, that's great, you know, but I'm pretty comfortable with life ending when I die, you know, if that's how it is. And 
if there's an all-loving God out there, that's amazing. Um, I have some serious questions about what the all-loving God has done with their power, but that's fine. We can get to that. Yeah, we'll get to that. But like, (laughs) but that's cool. You know, I I would love for there to be an all-loving God and for me to feel that kind of presence. Because I did, I did have sort of mystical experiences like that when I was, when I was younger. And it'd be cool to have those experiences again. But I also think that even if it's just a story, it's such an amazing set of, of myths, really, and myths in the sort of really broad sense of things that guide our lives that, um, I think I'm a better person and a more loving, caring person because of them, right? And so I'm really grateful for the formation they've given me. Jeff, what a lovely sentiment. And uh, we've reached our second break. Oh, great. So we'll be back with our final segment in just a minute. God and Other Delicacies has a weekly newsletter. If you'd like to subscribe, email me at godsdelicateshow at gmail.com and I'll put you on the list. Also, if you're listening to this show on iTunes right now, I'd love it if you scrolled to the bottom, hit five stars, and wrote a one to two sentence review. It really does help the show reach more listeners and it means a lot to me because I read them and it's nice to read nice things. All right, everyone, we're back with Jeff. Um, Jeff, I've loved this conversation. And something that grabbed me, two things that grabbed me that I feel somewhat thread together here, is you talked about having these mystical experiences when you were younger, and then you mentioned how you you hope to have them again. Right, yeah. I want to know something about those, maybe one in particular that you want to talk about. And then I couldn't help but sort of chuckle at the idea that you have these mystical experiences and yet you've never known serenity. And so what does that mean to have a mystical experience without serenity? To some extent, I feel like a mystical experience is serenity. But yeah. maybe I, I only know that from my own side of things. What does that mean to you? Yeah, well, good for you for having serene. I mean, I'm glad someone's having serene. <laughs> I, I don't I, live I my say, life there, but yeah. I've had them. <laughs> so, yeah. So I, for me, a mystical experience is an experience where I know for sure God exists. Mm. And it, they're brief, they're very brief, but there are these sorts of brief moments where it just seems undeniable to me that human existence has a purpose and a meaning, and we're not just sort of meaningless evolutionary cogs in some stupid violent machine. And, you know, I haven't had a ton of them, but you know, I have had these moments. You know, I remember being by the ocean at night when I was a teenager and you know, one time just praying the rosary uh, really intensely at high school. And as usual at our high school, I was probably pretty sleep deprived. And and actually, I remember just weeping, just weeping when I got married. And it, I, mean, I was excited to be marrying my wife, obviously, but it was actually just because of the way we got married in, in New Haven because uh, my wife went to divinity school at Yale and I went to to Yale for, for my PhD and, and uh, How fun. the divinity school chapel there is really beautiful. And so we, we got married at this divinity school chapel in, in the fall. And, you know, there was just this beautiful tree and I love trees. And there was this beautiful tree with this great big red leaf uh, and a bunch of red leaves, but there was one big red leaf right against the window. And I just remember just being so grateful for the intricacy of that leaf and this day and all these people being here and the sort of beautiful kind of very Protestant simplicity of, of, of the church we were in. And the music was really lovely that we had and just feeling this just abundant grace everywhere, right? Just, just 
so much grace and, and really feeling at that moment, like, yeah, okay. God exists. Yeah, definitely. God exists. And, and, and definitely there's a purpose and a meaning and a story that, that I'm part of. That's a good story. And that's a story with a happy ending. And, you know, I, I don't have that certainty often. Most of my life is not having that certainty. And when I sort of have those moments of certainty, my low level anxiety, is still there. It's always, it's always been there. I am fairly certain it'll always be there, but the anxiety is sort of accompanied by this, um, I don't know, this sense of safety, this sense of, of connection. And it's not a certainty that's kind of a smug certainty. You know, it's not a, well, I figured it out certainty. It's more of a, I don't know, a wisdom, I guess, right? It's this sort of just sensibility that, um, that I'm part of something bigger. And I don't have those moments as often anymore. I think to the extent I have them now, they're connected to having a, a very young child mm. in my life. And, and it's not really anymore about the existence of God, but instead it's about the sort of dignity of, of every life. You know, this is something I wanted to talk, talk to you about too. And, and actually, I'd also be interested in whether having a kid has affected you on this too. I, I think I'm someone, and this is because of the Jesuits and because of Catholicism, I really do believe and I really do try to actively believe that every life has dignity, that every life has worth and a purpose. You know, but I'm also in a profession that's very status-oriented and it's very concerned about status, right? And like sort of what you've done and what you've achieved and sort of what's on your resume and what's on your CV and, and where you've published and, you know, how often you're cited. And so now there's this thing called Google Scholar um, where you can look up how often a scholar has been cited. And it's wow. just... It's a huge deal, man. Like it's a map. People talk about it at tenure meetings. Uh, people talk about it for letters for tenure. Like how often has this person yeah, been cited? I, right? I have a lot of a lot of friends of mine like you that are working at high, at very renowned institutions, high level, and they under I under I get it. The citation thing is big. You know, how many papers are you the first right. at the top of the paper? You right. know, totally. all that stuff. You know, and like, look, I'm. I'm reasonably confident I'll get tenure. I, I don't know, but you know, I, I feel, pre- I had a very good four year review and I, I feel not worried about it, but at the end of the day, like there's all this, this status stuff and it never ends. Right. So you think like, just to give an example, you think like, Oh, you're in the NBA. That's amazing. Right. You're one of the best, like, I don't know what 200 best basketball players in the world. But then, you know, did you make the all-star team? Are you a starter, right? Are you going to get in the Hall of Fame? And so, you know, there's like sort of no matter what level you're at, there's these sort of status games. And I'm turning 40 in a month and I think like, when am I going to be done with this, right? When am I going to not care? And and, and especially because, God, who the hell am I? I'm at a a really good department. I have a tenure-track job. I mean, there's so many people as smart or smarter than me with PhDs who are struggling just to get solid work. They're like, like the job market and the academy is brutal. Yeah. And so like, I definitely have some imposter syndrome, but I feel, I feel relatively qualified to be here, but I have a ton of survivor's guilt. I mean, I'm just profoundly aware of the fact that there are lots of, you know, people from the year I finished my PhD program um, and before and after who were as smart as me who deserve a good job, you know, and they didn't find one. And, and what's interesting about that is I'm teaching these graduate students now that are going out in the, one of the worst academic job markets ever. And I just think about all the people who come to LA to be actors. You know, you could say a very similar story, right? Like extremely talented, you know, they're good actors, they're smart, they're funny, they're good looking, whatever they need to be. And it either just doesn't work out for them 
where it doesn't work out like they thought it would. And even if it does marginally work out for them, there's a sort of continual kind of sense of, uh, of status. And, and one of the things that I just try really hard to do is to remember this distinction between uh, internal goods and external goods. So the external good, uh, for example, playing basketball is like the money you can make from playing basketball or, or whatever your status you would get from playing basketball. But you could get that status or that money from conceivably something else, playing piano, plumbing, whatever. But you can't get the joy of playing basketball from anything except playing basketball. Mm. And I think about the internal goods of my work, out of my writing and my teaching, all that kind of stuff all the time. And I tell you what, I try to be, I like to think I'm the kind of person that could teach anywhere and make less money than I make now and not be in a fancy city and still just enjoy teaching. And I think to a large degree I would, but I think it would also be naive and hypocritical and disingenuous to pretend I don't to some degree also like the status. Sure. And so, you know, that for me is a big spiritual challenge, something I think about a lot, how to think about my own relationship to my work and to the status of my work. And, you know, to the fact that to some degree, the job I'm in and the world I'm in is, is zero sum, right? And so my having this job meant other people didn't get jobs and uh, other people who are also really smart and really talented. I mean, I don't know how to answer those things, but I can just say like that for me is a, is a very significant spiritual struggle that is very much informed by my Christianity and, and by the Jesuits. Yeah, I, 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 that's all great stuff, man. Um, and I love hearing it. I absolutely have no no connection to this whatsoever. Uh, I have no at all, no concerns right. about status or money or ego. <laughs> None, <laughs> never. Uh, no. Now everyone in Hollywood is just like very, very calm and like very- sedate. We don't even really care whether we're visible or not or whether the show was <laughs> successful or not. It's just something they need from us. No, God. How, just, how, I, just, how, I, love the, I love the art. I just love the art. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So that's something I really get at a lot uh, in this podcast. And I've actually, I say this often, I hope it's not annoying to my listeners, but this conversation, this weekly conversation is one of the most concrete, dependable, surprising, mysterious moments of presence in my life routine. I, uh, I don't identify as Catholic anymore. I, I, I definitely identify as culturally Catholic and I love the language. I love talking about it. Clearly, I'm interested in hearing how people think about it. And, right. And I don't, I for a while tried on the moniker of atheist and after a while, like I certainly loved the process of going down the Hitchens, Dawkins rabbit holes and all that <laughs> stuff. Oh you God. know, I, it was important for me. It, 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 unsh- sure. it unshackled me from, from a lot of, thinking. I was afraid of certain, they helped me not be afraid of certain things. Yeah. I wrote an article for Slate about why Neil deGrasse Tyson's rationalia tweet was idiotic. And I got so much new atheist hate mail. It was unbelievable. Oh, wow. I'd love to read your article. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, it's, they become deities in their own right, you know, and that's, that's theoretically the thing that the atheist is balking at. So I don't want to be that either. I want to live in a place where it feels like I'm, you know, this was that um, Rainer Maria Rilke. This is like uh, paraphrasing, but it's like associate yourself with what's poor. Oh, yeah. In fact, a, a Jesuit 
priest friend of mine who actually has been on this show, Father George Drance, who, who taught at Marquette, mm-hmm. he gave me that book when I was young and was very impressionable to me. And it's always really resonated with me. It's part of, the, you know, the Jesus idea that you and I both talked about, that radical right. poverty, uh, the historical Jesus, liberation theology, all this stuff. Yeah, yeah. And Hollywood is not about associating yourself with what's poor. <laughs> you know, that's not how it works here. You don't get promotions in this business at all. You have to win every job. Um, some people get handed things, and I have been handed things at times because I was I had achieved a level of status. But that's ephemeral, and it's it leaves as quickly as it comes. And it's a harrowing business in the in the regards that like what you've done sometimes matters uh-huh. uh, in helping you get somewhere else, and most of the time it doesn't. Huh. And this podcast came out of a a time of deep introspection, uh, of which I'm still in, where I'm asking myself, okay, well, how do I maintain a certain amount of a, a core happiness? And I need to have some material wealth to support my life. And how much material wealth do I need? That's up to each individual to decide. And then um, how much reward or accolade do I need from my work? Yeah. Having received yeah. quite a bit of it uh, as a younger man, you know, throughout my 20s and 30s, I've worked pretty consistently. I've never achieved certain heights, but I've achieved, you know, certain levels of status of renown in my certain circles. And it does feel good, but it's the wrong kind of good because it's not sustainable. And you don't realize that until I am where I am now, where I've turned 40. And the last two years have not been what I wanted my career to be on a professional level. And so it's given me this opportunity to go, okay, well, what are the things I loved? You know, like you, I also, as a very young man, I wanted to be a priest. I find that I have to keep turning my mind to this conversation. That helps me. I don't have any answers. Really, in fact, right now, I'm not interested in answers at all. I love hearing about individual answers of others. I love hearing about what answers they've struck on. I love living in a world where I get to embody somebody else's journey with this. And I feel like in a moment, like right now, I feel like the world has slowed down for me. I feel like it's slowed down. And here we are talking about something that feels really honest and real. It's not a part of some competition that I I can't control or I can't even understand the rules of. And, and there are lots of people in Hollywood that like to have this conversation. And I've had them on my sure. show. You know, that's not to say that Hollywood doesn't want to have this conversation. It's that we all, so many of us are subject to being shaken out of this moment of presence to be caught. And then again, this is where we're we're connecting here in your professional world. You're saying the same thing. So, right. yeah. you know, I think that whether or not I'm striking on some sort of answer and whether or not there was even really an initial inciting question to this, I think what yeah. you and I are kind of circling around is if we are people that say that we want to hold on to a center that feels holy in some way, yeah, yeah. that feels loving and holy yeah. and calm and trusting right. and honest, how do you hold that? What's the best way to hold that? Is going to mass every day or every week, is that the best way for you to hold it? Is praying every day, every night, all day, four times a day, five, you know, is, right. is getting down on your knees and, and facing whichever direction is Mecca. Is that 
is that going to get yeah. you to hold the holiness at the center? You know, these are all tools. The Jesuits have developed these tools, these ways to, to whittle away the distraction. And I, I've stopped, at least at this stage of my life, and I'm totally, totally aware that I could absolutely become interested in answers later. I'm not at all interested in answers right now. I totally am interested in how people do it. You're interested in others' answers, and you'll, you'll sort your own out later. Yeah, I, I think that the only thing I know that's working for me right now is asking people about it. When I'm asking people about it, that's my answer. Yeah. That I've figured out that this moment right now is my answer. And then when I'm editing the show and I'm sitting there listening to this conversation, I'm like, oh, yeah, this is nice. Nice to be in this conversation. It's the dialogue that's the answer to me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, I have a, a, a big... A bulletin board in my office of just like a bunch of different, um, you know, cool art and photographs and, and, and portraits of people. And, and there's a right in the middle is Dorothy Day, who's always been a big mm, hero of mine. And mm. She, uh, you know, she has that famous quote that we have all known the long loneliness and the only solution is community. Yeah, right, right. And I, you know, I, as someone who moved a lot all the time as a kid, uh, you know, I've, I've always thought a lot about how community works and, you know, I study communities and I think a lot about how how to make my relationships as non-instrumental as possible. And, you know, that's not always possible, obviously. You know, sometimes I'm checking out of the grocery store and I just need to check out of the grocery store, right? But I think there's a way that, especially in the way we live now, and I think also the kind of work that you and I do, that relationships can feel instrumental. And um, it can be instrumental. And you know, really seeing a person there um, and not a thing or not a means is for me a sort of ongoing practice and challenge um, to to do throughout my day. Which you know, obviously, I'm I'm not always good at. But I will say that, like, as much as I love writing and I love my research and I love the work I do, that a good way for me to feel sort of reconnected to humanity um, and that I'm doing this work for the right reasons is to, is to really center my teaching and to really focus on, on my relationships with my students and being there for them and, and being present to them, which again, there's all sorts of ways I mess up on, but, but I, I do try to be better at that. And, and also to luckily, I'm very lucky because I do research, you know, on people who are alive and who I actually often have relationships with as well. And so, you know, in writing about them to sort of present them Fairly. I mean, I don't want to, if they're, you know, if they're saying a jerky thing, I'm not going to pretend they didn't, but at the end of the day to, to present them as humans and not as caricatures or, or as saints. And, you know, just trying to treat people as people, um, <laughs> it's obviously somewhat glib and oversimplistic, but at the same time, I think it's, it's a really important way to live. And, and that's at least for me, one of many things that I try to do to, to maintain my life. And it's a little bit embarrassing to say, cause I'm a sociologist. And so, you know, like as a sociologist, I am trained to think structurally. And so of course, you know, I think, I do think there are massive structural changes that need to happen. Nonetheless, despite me thinking that I can't help thinking that one of the most important ways for me to live both as someone informed by Christianity and as someone with a leftist politics is to be kind to everyone I encounter and to treat them 
with decency and as people and not as as means and uh, as means to an end. And the irony, of course, is a lot of my respondents were conservative Christians and conservative Muslims do the same thing. I mean, where I'm different from them is they don't attach that with any infrastructural change as well. Right. And that would be my criticism of them. But, you know, I think at the end of the day, like, I think all of us have a tendency to think about where we rank in, in certain things or in certain ways. And having a small kid has just helped me to realize, like, I just don't give a shit how she ranks. I just, I truly don't care. And I, I could never say that about myself. You know, like I could never say about me, I don't care if people think I'm smart. Like, I don't care if people think I'm, I'm good looking or, um, or whatever, right. Or, or, or nice or funny. Like, you know, I, I care a lot what other people think about me. And do I care what other people think about my daughter? Sure. But only because I want her to be happy and I know that will affect her happiness. But at the end of the day, she's my kid and I'm fiercely loyal to her. And if she's not as smart as other people are, I just don't give a shit. Right. Like I just don't care. Like she's my kid and she's great right now. And there's a part of me that wishes I could be that generous with myself, you know, as I am with her. And there's probably, you know, solid genetic biological reasons why that's not the case or whatever. But, you know, to the extent that God is still speaking to me, I do wonder if that's a lesson God is giving me because, you know, I am also God's child and that's the kind of love that God would have for me. Mm. Um, and, you know, maybe I do think about maybe that's a, that's a lesson God is trying to get through my disbelieving skull. Oh, Jeff, that's a really lovely way to end it. Oh, thanks. Jeff, this was a really beautiful conversation, man. Thanks very much. I never know where these are going to go, and you brought so much deep thought to this, so much deep self-reflection, and so much academic work alongside that reflection. It was really fun to hear your thoughts and the generosity of your, your openness about yourself. And I... As I already told you, I, I love these moments. They mean a lot to me. And and so I appreciate you being here. Thanks, Nick. And to everyone out there listening, thank you very much. No, because I think I saw you on a sports radio thing where you were talking about the Huskers and you mentioned that you were on. Oh, uh, awesome. Were on. I'm so glad you caught yeah. that. <laughs> uh, it was great. It was great.